Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Slacky. I'm, I head up government and public affairs for AAA Northeast in Connecticut. Uh, I want to welcome everyone this morning to a uh, transportation outlook conversation that we're having with uh, Representative Johanna Hayes. Uh, we want to talk about the different transportation issues that we'll be facing, you know, the 117th Congress, but also the 116th Congress, because it's not out of session yet. Um, there, there's still uh, there's still some time left, and and obviously COVID um, and the health crisis and the economic crisis associated with that that's top of mind for everyone, especially um, our elected officials. Um, but we want to make sure transportation remains a part of the conversation um, going forward. So I just I'll, I want to give a brief introduction uh, to Representative Hayes, who um, many of you probably know, um, but. First, uh, you know, congratulations to to her on her reelection. She's, um, you know, now no longer going to be the uh, the freshman congresswoman uh, from Connecticut's fifth district, which runs from Danbury to Waterbury to Meriden on the south end, up to the the beautiful Litchfield Hills in the northwest part of the state. Um, she serves on the Education and Labor Committee as well as the Agriculture Committee. Uh, and of course, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, she was the 2016 National Teacher of the Year. Uh, so she got to serve as um, an ambassador for, for Waterbury uh, and the Fifth District, but also ambassador for education really around the, around the country uh, a few years ago and um, ran for Congress a few years ago and has uh, served the Fifth District well. And, and uh, we're really delighted that she could take some time uh, this morning to talk transportation. So welcome, uh, Representative Hayes, and, and congratulations on your re-election. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for, so much for having me for this very important conversation. Yeah, we're we're delighted. And and I just wanted to kind of start off with, you know, a, a broad question about transportation, which is, you know, how are your colleagues thinking about these issues? Or, or are your colleagues really, um, focused on, on transportation, um, maybe now, but also, you know, a, a year ago when things were a little bit more normal, was, was that a, an issue that was top of mind? Yes, actually, interestingly enough, when I came into the 116th Congress, transportation and infrastructure was something that we actually thought we could get some movement on. Both my Republican and Democrat colleagues all agreed that it was an issue that was necessary in their communities and then that our infrastructure was crumbling. So it was one of those things where we were wildly optimistic that going into this Congress, we would be able to see a transportation and infrastructure package move from start to finish. Um, we have actually had several committee hearings, conversations, uh, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee held several hearings and markups, and we even voted on HR2. Everyone was bringing in a very unique perspective of the needs of their district, and for me, being the fifth district representative of Connecticut, you don't grow up in a city like Waterbury without understanding the challenges to our infrastructure. You know, the Mixmaster has been under construction my entire life. Um, but interestingly enough, the conversation about infrastructure expanded because it started with roads, bridges, highways. And then over the last two years, I've seen rail, I've seen uh, ports, I've seen broadband co and connectivity. 
being included as a necessary part of any infrastructure package when we saw schools and businesses shifting to remote learning. So it was one of those things where everybody agrees it needs to be done. Everybody agrees on the way that it should be done. And then it seems like there was a hard stall. So I, I am even more optimistic that that conversation will continue because even my Republican colleagues can agree infrastructure is something that we should have been able to deliver on. It was a very easy one, it, not easy, but it was something we all agreed on. We all agreed on the importance of it, the necessity of it. We've looked at studies that aged out our bridges and highways, and it is critical that we begin to address these things with um, a robust infrastructure plan. So we were talking about it before, there was some movement, there was some optimism, but I think that it is something that everybody agrees. I mean after we get this health crisis under control. I mean, it's not one or the other. It's something that also has to be done. Yeah, to totally agreed. And, and you know, I like the fact that you mentioned how, you know, theoretically, at least bipartisan, um, th that this issue should be and, and what AAA thinks this issue should be, certainly. Um, you, you represent a district that has a diversity of transportation needs. Obviously, you talk about uh, the mixed master and 84 is kind of the, the main funnel through your district. Um, but there's also you know, rail uh, lines in Danbury and Waterbury, um, a lot of bus transit um, that's that's very vital to those areas as well. Um, and, and in Meriden too. Uh, Meriden, you know, now we have the, the Hartford Line station as well. Um, so when you come from a, a place that has so much, you know, not only highways, but also transit, how are you talking about that with, you know, your colleagues who might come from places where there's no transit at all, or it's, you know, a total afterthought? I think that's why the diversity of this caucus is so important, because everybody brings a very unique perspective. Um, for me, it, it's just... Connecticut Five in so many ways is not a homogenous community. I have people from all of my communities look different. I have 41 towns from large urban centers to uh, suburban areas to very rural farming communities, which all have very different infrastructure needs. I think the nice thing is that every single one of us is making the case for why this is equally as important. You know, I, when I talk to businesses in Litchfield County or even in Danbury, they're saying, we rely on a rail service that can come all the way from New York City in order to ship goods, you know, so that we can provide services, which is going to look very different than my colleagues in Iowa who may have um, freight shipping for some of their farming needs, but it's equally as important. So what it is is that, as a member, I really have to stay connected to the people in my community so that I can understand what their diverse needs are and that I can go back and articulate those things to my colleagues in Congress. I mean, we voted on two pieces. When we voted on both the HEROES Act and the updated HEROES Act, it would bring $5 billion in infrastructure funding back to Connecticut. And that wouldn't just be for projects like the Mixmaster or Highway. It would be to invest in our rail systems to expand both passenger rail and freight rail to make sure that um, our bridges are safe. You know, it would also help to ensure that we can invest in Connecticut jobs 
So the only way to do that, I mean, everybody comes with something something different, but I really rely on the people of the state to help me to appreciate and understand the specificity of their needs so I can articulate that to my colleagues in Congress. And then everybody basically is jockeying for position in the next package. Um, yeah. I, I submitted actually a very detailed letter to the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee on my legislative priorities. And it is it was a very expansive list because the needs in my district vary from place to place. I mean, you could be 10 miles down the road and you're no longer on the I-84 corridor, you're on, you know, a state road and the needs are very different. So we had to, we spent a lot of time last year, my staff and I just reaching out to different parts of the state to really be able to, to really articulate those very specific needs in great detail so that the communities, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense for me to send highway funding to Falls Village. You know, it, it's just a very different set of needs. So um, just staying connected with constituents, staying connected with stakeholders, understanding what those needs are, and then taking those back. And every member of the caucus is doing the same thing. And I think what I found to be interesting for as much as they're different, a lot of these needs are the same. You know, there are people in districts in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, who have some of the same needs that I have in Connecticut. So we're all beginning to understand and appreciate um, the diversity of our districts, but also many of the same similarities. Well, it's clear that you've got, you know, your, your ear to the ground on what the transportation needs are. And, and you know, we've got a good advocate um, up in, uh, or down in Washington, D.C. For, for transportation in the fifth. But but you mentioned the, the HEROES Act and, of course, you know, where the rubber meets the road is, you know, having, having the bills passed. And the, you know, the CARES Act did have a lot of funding for infrastructure, you know, for aviation, I think got a lot of the, the highlights, but it also had funding for transit and for Amtrak. And the HEROES Act would have added some more funding uh, for transit and, and for Amtrak as well. Um, but obviously that is, the, you know, that's stalled at least right now. Um, I guess I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think the odds are in the next couple months of having some short-term rescue package? And, and if we do have one, what do you think the odds are uh, having some transit funding in there specifically? Oh, I think the odds are very good, extremely good. Um, as you mentioned, the CARES Act did pass. At the beginning of the COVID crisis, we saw immediately that airlines were in crisis. The industry was coming to a grinding halt. So we addressed the needs of airlines back in March. But then as the pandemic continued, we saw that this was going to be just a ripple effect and every industry had been affected. So that is what was included in the HEROES Act. But I think moving forward, this should not be the response to a crisis situation. As you all, we had an election, there will be a change in administration. and. Uh, Vice President-elect Biden has made a clear commitment to rebuilding our infrastructure, to making those robust investments in, you know, shoring up our, 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 in, our internal infrastructure to make sure that our economy can get back on track. 
my Republican colleagues, rightfully so, are concerned about, you know, what are these types of things going to cost? What is the, what's the, the price tag on these types of investments? But I think we also have to balance that with the idea that if we are not making these investments, then when we have, you know, I, in Connecticut, we've had bridges collapse, which is much more damage than making the necessary investments. Um, I'm very encouraged by President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect uh, Harris because they talk about almost like an FDR type plan to invest in our infrastructure on the front end to make sure that we have a timeline for improvements and that we are not just every 50 years circling back and, and patching up the cracks. And I think that's important, even on a small scale. If you're a homeowner, you know that you don't wait till the water heater, you know, completely goes, you keep up with the schedule maintenance, you make sure everything is okay, you in, uh, inspect it for leaks and cracks, and you try to prevent those problems before they happen. Um, and again, this is something that both Republicans and Democrats agree upon. So I am more optimistic in the next couple of months that we'll be able to get something out the door because with the Democrat-controlled House who has already passed legislation and with the president who's already agreed upon it, I think that we'll be able to have some movement in the Senate and convince people that this is necessary for um, the future of our economy and of our country. And the return on the investment will be so much greater if we are making those investments on the front end. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well said. And, and, you know, I, um, I sincerely hope that that your your optimism for for a deal is you know it turns out uh turns out to be uh, prophetic um and then you you mentioned you know, the just really quickly I think so because even though I think people only see you know the what's projected out but when I have internal conversations with my colleagues it's very clear that we all want the same things we want these things to happen we may not agree on how to get there um, I think what has been lost over the last couple of years is the appreciation for the spirit of collaboration. Nobody's going to get everything they want. But on this one, on transportation and infrastructure specifically, people agree that we have to do something. Um, and as, especially if we are just on so many levels, this pandemic has really just revealed so many cracks in the delivery of services, so many things that we could have done differently. I'm very happy to see that broadband and connectivity is being included in a real way in conversations about infrastructure because we saw when we couldn't meet face to face, we we almost collapsed without the ability to have conversations like this or meetings virtually. Like we really had to rely on broadband. We so, we see school districts around the country who are totally totally remote. And if we don't have strong critical infrastructure that's going into our farming communities, that is going into our large urban centers, that is making sure that people are connected in real time, we really lose our ability to compete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and so I guess you know I'll come to maybe the most difficult question uh, that uh, that I'll ask you, which is you you mentioned that your your colleagues across the islands, I'm sure Democrats as well. Um, are concerned about what this might cost and and how are you going to pay for this? And I guess that's, you know, what sort of conversations are you having about, you know, is 
Could a gas tax increase be in the mix? Are there other funding mechanisms that are being talked about um, to, to pay for the, the investments that we know are necessary? I think, I mean, as a Connecticut person, I definitely don't want a higher gas tax. But I remember there was a, a local a state and local conversation about tolls last year. And I think we really have to balance those things because um, I'm someone who ap appreciates the fact that if I am supporting our state and local government, that I'm also receiving goods and services in return. I think the hard sell for people is if we're paying these high gas tax and we still don't have maintenance and upkeep on our roads. We still don't have the safety and modernization that we're looking for. We still have, you know, slow rail services. People are less inclined to say, I don't mind taking on a small increase if I'm seeing the return. So I think we have to be just transparent with people, help people understand where dollars are going to try to, my role in that whole conversation is try for me to try to secure as much federal investment in these programs as I can so that, that the people in my district and in the state don't ultimately bear the brunt of these things. If we can become a part of a national plan to um, modernize, improve safety of our Connecticut highways without adding a toll, I'm all on board for that. You know, so my job is to really try to make the best possible case at the federal level to get the greatest return from the federal government, the largest investment from the federal government so that what's left to the people of the state of Connecticut um, will be minimal when we talk about um, the cost share. And then, you know, leave it up to the governor and the state and local authorities to ensure that they're making the best use of those, those dollars and operating in a way that is fiscally responsible for the people in the state. Yeah, but absolutely. Well said. And uh, I did want to ask about a, a different, but certainly related to transportation topic that I know you've been a big champion of, and that's been in the news, you know, recently with uh, with President-elect Biden, uh, and that's the Clean School Bus Act. And I know you you've you know you really championed the idea of investing, you know, in a big way in um, in greening that that school bus fleet. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, you know, what, what brought that passion uh, to that issue? Yes, that the Clean School Bus Act was one of the first, actually the second piece of legislation that I sponsored. Um, right now, I think we have about 54 co-sponsors. And where does that passion come from? I spent 10 years in a bus line, you know, standing outside with idling buses. And, you know, I'm an adult. So I have the wherewithal to move around to make sure I just think about children who spend so much of their time waiting for buses, on buses, getting on and off buses. We have the technology. So we should be making sure that our most vulnerable population, which is our children, do not have to try to mitigate the damage of breathing in these emissions. Um, and we can do it. I was very excited that language from the Clean School Bus Act was included as an amendment in HR2. We're trying to do, I think, a $50 billion pilot program um, that would really provide some economic justice because it would first go to our, um, our most high-need school children. But it's something where we have the ability and the capacity to do it. We have the technology. Buses emit so much diesel um, 
the diesel fuel, the, the pollution, we can change that. So it's one of those things that um, everyone, when I first started to talk about it, it was like this, this big idea, she wants to go green. And it's like, yeah, we should all want that. You know, we should not want our children um, waiting outside and every day uh, breathing in these emissions and everyone else would benefit. So it was, it was something that was kind of an outlier conversation, I would say two years ago. But I, the momentum that I've seen just, just gather around, actually, we can do this and we can do it as part of a larger package. And then moving forward, we can make sure that we are purchasing and replacing buses with energy efficient models, with um, clean energy models, with um, low emission or zero emission models. And it's something we can do. So it's not like this big, crazy idea, which is what people are like, what is she talking about? What does she think she's doing? But just think about the amount of time children spend on buses, the amount of time, you know, school faculty, teachers spend waiting for buses outline, outside, kids unloading off of buses. It's, it's something that we have complete control over. And if we are committed to it and invested in it, we can change it. You know, that's very different than asking every American to change their, swap their car out to a clean energy vehicle. That's something we have very little autonomy over. It will take a lot more time. But when we're talking about school buses, those are generally owned by municipalities or contracted out by municipalities. And if the, if the federal government makes some sort of investment um, or provides initiatives for those things to happen, I really believe we can do it. And it seems like, you know, the the range anxiety that people might get for their personal vehicle where they might say, oh, well, what if I want to drive, you know, 500 miles one day? Um, that's not as big of an issue with, with the school buses, which, you know, are going to have pretty defined routes. Right. It's not as big of an issue with the school buses. They have clearly defined routes. But also, I think part of our infrastructure plan will be charging stations in, in more accessible locations or um, power, battery power that lasts longer, you know, reserve power. There's so many things that we can do. I mean, we are, uh, I think that people are very hesitant because it seems like the seismic shift and everything would have to change. But if we are making those changes, I guess, preemptively and planning ahead, then we won't be left in a situation where we have to change. So I'm very excited about that amendment very excited that the language was included very excited that the transportation and infrastructure committee is excited about it and actually in the 2021 appropriations package there was there was a funding set aside for a pilot program so it really is something that i think um, i'm going to continue to push it will gain momentum and traction on it and i'm hoping that we can get to just a nationwide energy efficient fleet that where our kids are not breathing in, you know, these emissions. No, that, that's great, and, and appreciate your advocacy on that. And um, I know we started a couple minutes late. Do you have a couple more minutes? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so I, you know, I wanted to to ask from your your perspective on the education and labor committee, and obviously your background in education. Um, when when we think about the future of transportation. You know, we're talking about um, high-tech autonomous vehicles, which are not here today, but you know, hopefully 20, 25 years down the road, they will be. 
Um, and that's going to require, you know, a workforce that's able to do the innovation, but it's also going to require, you know, uh, skilled manufacturers and skilled auto technicians. Um, you know, how do you, I guess, um, approach the the education needs of, of the workforce from the, the transportation sector uh, in your role as a uh, committee member? Did you see my face just light up? <laughs> <laughs> because I've spent time um, on my committee from the very beginning. I came in as an educator, as a classroom teacher, and it was almost shocking when I first said in committee to everyone, a four-year college is not for everyone. We really need to, to invest in robust apprenticeship programs. Um, and actually last week when we were in session, we voted on the National Apprenticeship Act. And at my high school, we actually had an auto shop and they trained, our, our, our students could graduate with a certification and then go on to a trade school and be uh, fully certified mechanics with making good paying jobs, being able to really support themselves, their families, whatever. And I think we really need to do a lot more of that. In this, in my district specifically, we have a few tech schools, but not enough for the, the number of jobs that are available or the number of students who are interested. Many of these schools are a lottery or a rotating system, or they have a finite number of slots to fill. I think we really need to expand that and tap into young people much earlier. Also, I think we're going to see, as a result of this pandemic, many jobs being eliminated and people having to get retrained for different jobs or new jobs. I first think that we have to make just a commitment to um, Connecticut jobs, American-made products, American jobs, really training the, training the next generation workforce. Uh, that's what this National Apprenticeship Act seeks to do. In the first year of the 116th Congress, we did a lot of work on higher education and student loan debt and things like that. So I was very pleased to see that as a balance to that, the second year we spent time doing apprenticeships because in my mind, I see that as any student either graduating college or any young person who's seeking a career pathway for success, you have the option of going on to college and getting a four-year degree or pursuing your path or getting some practical work and training skills and being successful in the workforce. And I hear so many employers say, we have the jobs and we don't have the people to fill them. Um, and I think just as we move forward, when we're talking about transportation, the future of transportation is gonna look very different than just a mechanic. We're going to need people who are computer programmers and you know, um, environmentalists, all of these different people because the industry will look different. And if we, we can do that, you know, we can do it. And on our, on my committee, not a, I'm committed to the higher education side, the apprenticeship side, but this committee also covers labor. I want those jobs to stay here. I want uh, people to be able to get good paying jobs with safety protocols and procedures in place where we are protecting, you know, supporting the employer, but also protecting the employee. And all of those things can happen if we have um, a strong uh, and robust commitment to improving our transportation uh, infrastructure. That, that, no, excellent. And I, I have a few colleagues who have backgrounds in uh, um, you know, automotive engineering and, 
they've they've talked themselves about the need for for more mechanics and and skilled auto technicians um yep. so i think your answer is going to make them uh very happy and yep. i wanted to close i think we have you know about one minute left but i, uh, I wanted go ahead. the other thing i would say we need to offer stability to the industry i think people we're passing legislation you know one year out two year out two years out and that's very difficult for future planning so i'm hoping that you know any programs that we secure in relation to this transportation infrastructure space we can say you know this is a five-year commitment this is a 10-year commitment whatever that looks like because it's very difficult when people are going year to year and it looks like we're on the brink of you know the next best thing and then we're we take two steps back so i think just really being able to offer some long-term planning solutions to the stakeholders in these areas and um, just a financial commitment so that when they're making their plans, they can plan accordingly. States can plan accordingly. We know that the federal government will be offering this much assistance over the next five years. So now we can make a state budget that complements that. So I think just um, being realistic about timelines and federal commitments is also something that we have to do because if we are committed to infrastructure, that shouldn't change from administration to administration. It should be something that even if it starts in one administration, the next administration can just pick up the ball and finish it. That, that's music to Arias because I know we've talked about you know the need for long-term highway highway bills and, and certainly stability for the industry as well. Um, and I think that that's a great uh, great place to end it. So you know, thanks so much, uh, Representative Hayes, for taking the time. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, looking forward to to working together in the future. Absolutely, thank you so much, and we will definitely be reaching out as these um, this legislation, these conversations uh, progress. So thank you so much for all of your support, all of your help. Everyone, please stay safe and enjoy your Thanksgiving. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everyone.